Hello, and welcome to the Warden FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Kian Asani. Recently, we were invited to the FinTech Innovation Lab Demo Day, where 11 enterprise tech companies got to showcase inventive products and services. The FinTech Innovation Lab was founded in 2010 by Accenture and the Partnership Fund for New York City. The lab provides early and growth stage FinTech companies with access to the world's leading financial institutions. The lab was established to help make New York a leader in fintech and to grow technology jobs by leveraging the concentration of large finance institutions and deep domain expertise that exist in New York. In this podcast, you will hear interviews with Maria Gotch from the Partnership Fund for New York City, Hans Morris from NICA Partners, George Hessler from Magma Trading, and Nir Perry from CyberRight. Our first interview is with Maria Gotch, President and CEO of the Partnership Fund for New York City. The Partnership Fund has invested over $173 million to preserve New York City's competitive edge and to mobilize the city's world financial and business leaders to help build a stronger and more diversified local economy. Maria, thank you so much for joining us today on the Warden FinTech Podcast. My pleasure. So the Partnership Fund of New York uh, has a terrific mission statement. You invest in nonprofit and for-profit companies that ensure a promising future for New York City. Can you tell us a bit about how the fund is structured and some of the investments you've made to date and you're most proud of? Sure. So the fund was set up about 22 years ago by Henry Kravis. He actually went out and raised the money personally from many of the large corporates in New York and also private equity investors. They each put up a million dollars and we are structured as a nonprofit fund, uh, really an evergreen fund. So that means that if we make returns, which we try to do in some, some situations, that money comes back to our fund to be reused again. So we don't make any distribution to, um, to the investors. And the deal, if you will, with the investors was that we would preserve capital and that we would try to make enough money to pay for expenses. But in the meantime, we would have an ongoing source of capital to continue to make investments to help New York City. That's fantastic. What are some of the investments you're most proud of? So we have done uh, an unusually wide range of investments. So we invested a number of years ago and helped a school, it was a private school in a very tough neighborhood in East New York, move from uh, three trailers on the back of a church lot to buying a building in East New York and really uh, creating a wonderful professional school physical plant to complement the great instruction that they were doing for their kids. And the kids were all uh, minority, many of them from low-income families. Um, and that building became not just a great source of education, but actually sort of an anchor for redevelopment of that neighborhood. Um, we most recently uh, have put money into a very interesting project in the Brooklyn Navy Yard called New Lab, which is a co-working space for entrepreneurs working in frontier technology. And so, um, but they, what's different about them is they provide the physical things that you need to make a physical product. So a 3D printing lab, a machine shop, an electronics lab, um, a woodworking shop. So you can actually make the prototype of your rocket right with, you know, five steps from your office. And they've got expertise that helps you do that. And then um, a last one is we were very early capital, sort of took a venture capital approach to getting a very interesting nonprofit called Grameen America launched in the United States. So they were taking the micro-lending model that was developed in small villages in Bangladesh by Grameen Bank, uh, bringing it to the United States, and there was a lot of skepticism as to whether you could bring something from a small village in Bangladesh to the United States. 
but we put in very early capital um, and really with our money helped that they, they used our money to help prove that that model actually worked in the United States and so they've gone on to lend uh, to about 45, when we exited the investment, 45,000 women in increments of 1500 to $6,000, and all for income-producing properties for those low-income families. Wow. So you also made several investments in the fintech space, Kazisto, uh, Revolution Credit, Truex, T-Rex. Can you tell us a bit about some of those investments and why fintech is so important to New York City and the Partnership Fund? Sure. And we... Uh, we're actually early investors in fintech in the first wave of fintech in New York, which was back in the late 90s. Okay. So back in the late 90s, the first wave of fintech was basically taking data and trading and putting them on the internet. So we were investors in Creditex and Lonex um, and Interlinks. Those wow. were the first gen. And when we set up our uh, fintech innovation lab, we actually took some of the entrepreneurs from those companies and made them mentors in our fintech lab. So we had the first gen of fintech mentoring the, the next generation. And so the, the, those investments that you referenced uh, were all graduates of our FinTech Innovation Lab. And that was a program that we created coming out of the financial services, the crisis in financial services in 2008. And as we like to say, never waste a crisis. So uh, we were starting to hear about very interesting innovation happening on the West Coast and not enough happening in New York City. We had a meeting with uh, the CIOs of five major banks, and we actually put a very simple question to them. Where do you look for innovation? And to a person, they said, oh, California, Boston, London. And when we asked, how about New York City? Nobody was looking here. Wow. So we went back to them, and we proposed, if we sort of do the work of organizing this accelerator program, we serve up a bunch of companies, can we get you to spend time with those companies? Because A, it will be helpful to those companies, and those companies will be relevant to you. And that's how the FinTech Lab got, got launched. And so then the Casisto, Revolution Credit, T-Rex, were all graduates of that program. Wow, that's amazing. So how did the FinTech Innovation Lab come to be and how did the Partnership Fund of New York kind of spark this incredible effort? So we think strategically about what is missing in the New York ecosystem from an economy perspective and where can our relationships and a little bit of money, because in the scheme of New York City, $130 million is not very much mm -hmm. compared to the trillions of dollars that move through New York City. But we try to, to pick where we can amplify that money with uh, our very in, interesting and extensive uh, group of corporate relationships. And so financial services is obviously a key sector for New York City. Of course. It provides a lot of the tax revenue for the city and the state. And so keeping that strong is obviously a priority, but not at the but not by putting your head in the sand and ignoring the fact that disruption's happening. And mm -hmm. so our, we, we uh, set up the FinTech Lab to help the financial services sector find interesting new technologies, but also to use that expertise to grow FinTech companies in New York. Some of them may take business away from the large institutions, but from an economy perspective, you benefit if you have both. And if you have the disruptors alongside of the incumbents, um, they play off each other, they make each other better, and then overall the economy grows. And that really is our, and so we run the FinTech Innovation Lab as a civic program, uh, very much with that mindset of creating technology jobs in New York and keeping New York really the leader in financial services broadly. As a native of New York, I'm very proud to have the Partnership Fund uh, moving this effort along. Zor Gorilov, actually from Kazisa, was on the podcast recently. It's a Great. podcast. So 
thank you so much for your time. We're really excited to have you on the podcast and we're excited to see the Innovation Lab today. Great. Thanks for coming. Bye-bye. Next up, we have Hans Morris, managing partner of NICA Partners. NICA is a leading venture capital firm focused on connecting innovative companies to the global financial system. In addition to being the managing partner, Hans also serves as chairman of the board of Lending Club and board member at Avid Exchange, Boomtown, Payoneer, and Sigfig. Prior to NICA, Hans held several senior management positions at General Atlantic, Visa, and Citigroup. Hans, thank you so much for joining us on the Warden Fintech Podcast today. Great to be here. Uh, so NICA is a leading venture capital firm focused on connecting innovative companies to the global financial system. Can you tell us a bit about your strategy and how you leverage your impressive network of LP advisors to make investments in the fintech space? Well, I think what what we're I think good at is helping entrepreneurs navigate the complexity of the financial system. And if you think about why uh, financial services is different from other um, forms of technology, uh, it's, first of all, it's, it's highly regulated, and I, and I would often say it's regulated for a good reason. The activities are regulated because they attract lots of crooks if it involves money. And also, money is uh, it's emotional to people. Like, you getting being separated from your money it creates a lot of anxiety. And yeah. so, uh, all around the world, in every single jurisdiction, these activities are regulated. The degree of regulation, the nature of that regulation changes, but it's hard to navigate that if you're an entrepreneur to understand it. Second thing is, is the amount of risk and therefore capital that's required to undertake those activities varies quite a bit. So certain uh, things are not that risky. You could be just a software layer that's helping people make decisions, but if you are, if you actually are insuring lives or uh, making loans or um, investing people's money, those all have risks. And if you make a mistake, you can, there could be significant consequences to the company as well as to their customers. So, it's a um, understanding that and understanding therefore what is the uh, the best approaches to distribution, regulation, actual design of the product. Um, are things that if you can help an entrepreneur, if you can help an entrepreneur of an early stage company save three months, that's a big deal. But sometimes we think we can help them save a year or, right. or more. And so it could be the difference between success and failure. Yeah. Um, the other thing that we really believe in is that we, I think we're, we're highly collaborative. We, we often, I like investing with other investors. And, and as you venture capital, um, and particularly in financial services, as um, done well by teams and we work with lots of other excellent venture firms and and I think we have a good reputation as being adding value to the to the to the combined um, effort so right. those are the things which I think are different the thing is we have as you said uh, these limited partner advisors LPAs we call them and and it's a you know remarkable group of people and I, I often say like one of those people is a phone call away from the truth you know there, there is in, in many cases there's a, a question, and it could be how to get, you know, what's the best approach to uh, some sort of partner in the financial system? Or what really would this regulator think? Or how are we going to, uh, what's the best, what's the history of trying to solve this particular problem? And having someone that off the top of their head has a comprehensive, is fluent in that issue, is such a difference to to that entrepreneur mm-hmm. versus someone who's read about it or, or has some, you know, has some exposure to it. That that complete fluency, like, well, that distribution 
process doesn't work, and here's why. This is what the experience is. And so if you could solve this problem, that's interesting, but no one has. Uh, or um, here's the problem. When you dig into those APIs, the, the flaw of them is, is this. You're going to consist consistently run into this problem. Right. So again, it's not that you can't do it. It's just that you have, a, you have to have a much more clear understanding of what that problem is. The other thing I'd say in, um, in enterprise... It's not. It's true in consumer and enterprise that every single financial, every fintech company has to connect to the financial system. Mm -hmm. So you're gonna, you don't reinvent the whole financial system. So you need to settle securities. You need to, you need a a, a license to to pay. You need to have counterparties that will do certain things for you. So the the and then in some cases you're selling to large, complex enterprises. The precision with which you can give advice to that and to that to to an entrepreneur about the best way of exactly who inside some complex organization is going to make that decision and what's going to drive that decision also can be life or death to that to that company because um, you can easily spend a year screwing around in, in some big complex company and if you can with precision get them to the right person who will make the decision yes or no quickly right. that's extremely valuable. So it's a lot, I, I realize that's probably a longer answer than you were looking for, but I also think that the, the, the problems are often more complex, and so therefore helping provide solutions to those problems is very valuable. Yeah, no, like you said, it's a complicated space that requires a lot of expertise. Yeah. Um, your background is very interesting. You held multiple management positions across Citigroup and then spent uh, some time as a managing director at General Atlantic, one of the best growth investors. How did NICA come to be out of those experiences, and how were you able to build this amazing LP advisor network? Well, I, I, the LP advisor network uh, came from, I'd say, I've been doing it a long time, so you get, uh, you, you have, uh, uh, you, I developed lots of contacts and people that I, I know, and, I, and I, I, would, I agree with you that there's, I've had um, a lot of diversity experiences, including at Citigroup, because right. I started as a banker covering a lot of companies, they weren't called fintech, but I worked on the IPO of Capital One and the IPO of First Data. I worked oh, wow. on a lot of M&A with First Data. I had at MasterCard was a client. I helped create, I was a good banker on the creation of global payments, and uh, we did the IPO of PayPal. I worked on lots of the payment network consolidation. I worked on the privatization of NASDAQ, a lot wow. of market structure things back in the 90s. So through that, that, um, you know that the executives at those companies um, either are still involved, or that were there. Um, sometimes it was a, a junior person became the CEO or something, and uh, so that network is is definitely important. Citigroup itself is a um, you know gigantic global uh, network of people that are still there, but also many you know you know hundreds of very talented people that worked there at one point. Uh, Visa also is a, is a remarkable network. I mean, um, and and I, I got exposure by moving to San Francisco to to become president of Visa was uh, really one of the best things that ever happened to me because it got me to San Francisco. It got me to the Bay Area, and I really changed a lot of my thinking from being there. And NICA, I don't know if you realize this or not, but NICA stands for New York, California, and the original. Um, premise I felt is it certainly in the uh, in like 2012 let's say 
the I think it was it was very clear to me that Silicon Valley didn't understand the financial system, mm. and the financial system didn't understand Silicon Valley. Yeah. So a big part of what we want to do is is bridge those two worlds to enable them both to you know banks needed to and insurance companies needed to modernize their tech and were greatly underestimating the changes that were that were the incipient changes in consumer behavior and, and I think consumer and business expectations mm-hmm. of an experience. That was a profound change coming out of, I'd say, the coincidence of the financial crisis with the developments in technology. Yeah. So those two things coincided, and suddenly, really, expectations were very different. Attitudes were very, very different. And in 2010, 2012, I'd say most banks and insurance companies were focusing on fixing the, the you know adjusting to this massive re-regulation cycle coming out of the financial crisis and really just trying to you know husband resources and manage their capital and repair themselves versus rethinking expectations of consumers and how to meet those right and what um, at the same time the I think it's really it's quite fair to say this which is many of the fintechs in 2010 or 2012 were naive about the complexities of what they were entering into and how easy it was going to be to change. And, mm-hmm. and then realize, like, hey, once you get big, first of all, you attract crooks. If no one knows about you, there's not a lot of crooks. Once you get big, there's lots of fraud and lots of problems. And second, regulators pay attention. It's the, the activities are regulated. You yeah. might not be regulated, but your activities are absolutely going to be regulated. And, and I think that that, um, that created, to me, um, it, uh, the reason I started NICA is... Um, General Atlantic, which is, a, as you said, is just a fantastic growth investor and has a, uh, and has a you know, I think it's, it's the best global growth investor. Uh, but they invest at a later stage and to really help shape this at the early stage is what I was just personally interested in. Yeah. And I felt there was this gap, which is the venture firms, even the very best venture firms who have great track records in in financial services, and many of them do, but they weren't experts on the financial system. And yep. so I felt we could uh, work with some of those great investors and actually help uh, create better outcomes. So speaking of some of those early stage companies and investments that Nike has seeded, you seeded six, over 60 portfolio companies, including some of the biggest logos, Acorns, Affirm, Common Bond. Can you talk about one of your more recent investments and maybe more, or one of the investments you're most proud of at Nike? Well, I think um, there's two. I think a blend would be a good example of something where they had a good idea, which was they, they were uh, several ex-Palantir engineers who had mm-hmm. worked on the both the Bank of America and the J.P. Morgan Chase uh, mortgage technology, mortgage uh, data morass <laughs> that, that they were in. Uh, and so they understood what a big problem it was. But their go-to, they didn't really under, they didn't have a clear idea of a go-to-market strategy and how right. that should work. And I think we had a, we had considerable influence on shaping that go-to-market and helping them understand who were the key, the best clients to go to and help make high, very high quality, like like very senior introductions to some of those companies. And uh, and I think we've been uh, you know part of plan for you know almost the very beginning, and it's and uh, and it's and they've become I think a very important tech vendor which is going is going to go way beyond just mortgage origination yeah. technology 
Um, another company that's more recent, which I, I think is also um, very interesting in terms of their and what they're focusing on right now, but could be much bigger than that, is Ethic. And Ethic is focusing on um, ESG uh, investing, and they're doing mm-hmm. it in an important and I think a very creative way, which is they have a dashboard that allows you to customize what ESG means to you. Because ESG, if you define ESG, your issues will be different than mine, and every person will have different issues. Right. That's one of the problems with it. Uh, everyone's in love with ESG, but are you more interested in carbon footprint or ethical treatment of animals or um, uh, an ethical supply chain or women on boards or data abuse? And it, it evolves, so mm. you can't define it with any precision. So recognizing that, they create this dashboard, so you create your own ESG, um, definition and then you pick a passive index that you like they will subtract out the offensive companies interesting and substitute it with other companies such that the overall portfolio performance is very close and with a very mod- modest tracking error and and allows you to take a passive portfolio and a very low cost customize it for yourself and make you feel better about yourself right it's white label so it's it's really allowing investment advisors and others to to do that and um, but it really also I think it, what's bigger about it is it allows a personalization of a portfolio construction at scale for uh, and that is a big powerful idea and I think that could replace that's a very credible incredibly superior form of investing than ETS for example in terms of a passive strategy and, mm-hmm. and it's more tax efficient and allows customization to an individual so that could be a much bigger idea so yeah those are great investments um, lastly you engage with the FinTech Innovation Lab we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it today yeah uh, how does NICA engage with the FinTech Innovation Lab and the portfolio companies or graduates that come out of the lab well, we've got a couple that have come out of the lab, and what um, I think they do, I think they, they have an excellent program, and I often, I tell entrepreneurs, look, if you're thinking about selling to banks, this is a great opportunity, because you, it's very rare that you get the attention of 25, I don't remember how many they have now, but they have a lot of these uh, large financial institutions. You get mentors, you get the chance to uh, understand with precision what they're focusing on. You get uh, you get a chance to uh, to really understand the the just the language. As I said, it's almost like you know the, the like remember I said fluency in the in the issue. Like mm-hmm. in many cases, entrepreneurs don't don't get what words you're supposed to be using. Right. So they're talking at each other and not not really understanding the problem and therefore the solution. So it's a very good in depth immersion. It's like language immersion. Uh, so it's um, so they do a really nice job. Uh, they've created some very good companies, um, and I like and they and it's a well run program. It's it's uh, so it's something we're proud to be part of. Absolutely. Well, Hans, thank you so much for joining okay. us today on the podcast. All right, it's excited to have you on. All right, good luck to you and all your students. Thank you. Next on the podcast, we have one of this year's graduates of the FinTech Innovation Lab, George Hessler, CEO and founder of Magma Trading. Magma Trading has created a new kind of stock market that allows broker-dealers to trade large blocks of equities without creating buying pressure on a stock. This structure allows market-making firms to post large potential trades without fear of getting run over by high-speed electronic sweeps. George, thank you for joining us on the Warden FinTech podcast today. Thanks for having me. So to start, I thought it'd be great to hear about your very interesting background um, prior to starting Magma Trading. 
Uh, well, I started out as a bond trader, and eventually I got into doing a bond trading platform. And uh, just after 2000, I was asked to switch over to the dark side of equities. Okay. <laughs> and there was a firm called Lava Trading uh, that was just getting started. Uh, Lava became a pretty big part of the market. It ended up trading about 10% of the U.S. stock market. And uh, we built that company up and ended up selling it to Citigroup. Wow. So I've uh, been involved in electronic trading platforms ever since. I'm starting to see how the name came together <laughs> between Lava and Magma. That's right. So what's the difference between Lava and Magma? What prompted you to start Magma? Well, Lava was the first aggregator in U.S. equities. Uh, before Lava, people had different places where they could trade, and they need a different system for every place that they wanted to trade. So yep. if you can imagine if you wanted to buy thousands and thousands of shares, and some of it was on Instanet, and some of it was at Bloomberg, and some of it was at New York, and some of it was at NASDAQ, you would need to get on a separate system uh, to do that trade. And so we used to call it swivel chair trading, where you'd get on a keyboard. You literally have eight keyboards sitting around your desk as you did this sweep. Uh, it sounds pretty simple now, but Lava put that into one uh, package, one platform. And if you push the button, we could buy from all those different venues. So that's an aggregator, right? right? You're still buying at all those different venues, but you're buying it through one platform. With Magma, what we did was we took that aggregation, so it's a very similar concept, but put it into one venue itself. So we have a new stock market uh, structured with what the SEC calls an ATS, an alternative trading system. And people can then trade to aggregate all the, the stock around the street on one venue. So are you competing with the exchanges? We actually cooperate with the exchanges in the sense that if a big trade goes off on Magma, mm -hmm. then every one of the exchanges will get a trade as well. Right. So in some sense, what we're doing is we're allowing people to buy in one location from all of the other lo locations as well. Got it. So while they could trade on Magma and not trade on the exchanges, in the big trades, everyone's going to get the trade. So I heard you talking in your presentation about shrinking trade sizes as a result of algorithmic trading. You said the average trade size is now 200 shares. Uh, so why, would, why does that make a platform like Magma so important to the market? Yeah, it's really uh, an unusual industry. I can't think of another one like it where there really is no wholesale market at all. Right. Uh, so if you're trying to buy 200,000 shares and the average trade size is 200 shares, that's 1,000 trades you have to do. Right. Think about the computational complexity, the operational inefficiency to do that. And maybe most important, if you're buying something 1,000 times, think what could happen to this price of that stock. You could really push it up over some period of time. It's gonna take longer to buy it, and it's gonna push it up. So the idea of trading in much larger size shrinks the amount of trade, si trade time that it takes to get a big uh, size trade done. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you can get that done more quickly, then the opportunity cost of the market moving away gets reduced. Right. So it's very important for larger firms that work with institutional investors uh, to trade in that larger size, you know, for efficiency. Right, that makes sense. So what are the uh, ch biggest challenges you face in convincing traditional financial institutions to implement your technology? Uh, virtually everyone that we've gone to says, wow, that's a great idea. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what they tend to face, and you know, what I feel is our biggest competition is, is just inertia. Yeah. You know, they do have so many systems set up. 
So to add a venue to that system requires the cooperation of so many different departments. Yep. Uh, whereas before, when we rolled out Lava, we originally rolled it out to individual traders. Mm -hmm. So if you could imagine uh, a firm like UBS had 180 installations of Lava, uh, one for each of their market-making traders. Uh, that's not the case anymore. So we have to then integrate with these multiple systems within each large broker-dealer. So it's a little more complex process. However, once it's in place, then it can handle a lot more trading. Right. And the business model, just so I understand correctly, is that based on a trade or per share? Is it a fee-based system? I'm curious. Yeah. So similar to the exchanges, we charge a fee per share right. uh, traded. So it's, it's linear. <laughs> so yeah. the more you trade, uh, the more you collect. Right. Uh, we charge less than uh, most exchanges and less than uh, most uh, dark pools or, or pools that trade in any kind of size. Uh, but we tend to trade in larger size uh, you know, trades. So in, in that case, you know, we think as we build up the, any kind of market share, we can pretty easily get to break even early. Mm -hmm. And then one other interesting thing you brought up was uh, the buying pressure that could result from buying um, shares in small blocks as you're trying to make a large, trans large trade or transaction. Um, why is it so important then for Magma to be able to do this with a wholesale solution so that you're not facing buying pressure as you're trying to build up uh, that stake? Yeah, so if you think of Magma as being a, a venue to trade at just like an exchange, uh, we don't take positions ourselves. We have either market makers or large uh, institutional banks that have customer orders on one side and on the other side as well. So we're the place for them to meet. If someone under the current systems splits a trade up into a thousand small little trades, you can imagine how you know, buying every 30 seconds in a given stock will attract you know, people that are looking at that data and saying, wow, I'm starting to sniff out that this stock is, is under buying pressure. Yep. Maybe we should buy it as well. Right. And that ends up costing the original institution um, you know, a higher price on that stock. So with Magma, by having a large banks and market makers be able to offer big size in a wholesale concept, instead of having to meet 200 shares at a time, mm -hmm. um, they can actually get the trade done before the market even knows what's going on, right. get the price that it currently is at, and then if it turns out that later on the market goes up, well, that's actually to the institution's benefit. Yeah, that makes sense. So we would be remiss if today we didn't mention the FinTech Innovation Lab. Uh, how has the FinTech Innovation Lab helped uh, magma trading um, in accelerating its process of growth? Well, as I mentioned, it's, it's difficult sometimes to get into these large tier one banks and, and work with them from the outside as a vendor, if you will, um, or a new platform. And, and so the introductions that we've gotten through the FinTech Innovation Lab, uh, the network of, of contacts that they have, the advice that we've received from the tier one institutions and from the mentors and entrepreneurs and residents of the FinTech Innovation Lab have just put, made the entire experience a fantastic one. So we, we're really grateful to have been selected for it. And I think that it's uh, really helped us to uh, accelerate uh, our integration with those different tier one banks. So we're really looking forward to continuing that process with them as this formal part of the lab is over, we still have all the contacts and we continue to move forward. 
That's great. George, thank you so much for joining us today. We're excited to have you on. It's great. Thank you very much. I appreciate you inviting me on, and it was great to be here. Nice to talk to you. Great. Thanks. Our last interview from the day was with another graduate of the FinTech Innovation Lab, Nir Perry, CEO and founder of CyberRight. CyberRight enables insurers, brokers, and agents to cyber profile and benchmark the cyber insurance risk of small and medium-sized businesses worldwide, and to estimate the financial impact of potential cyber incidents on their business using their unique cyber profiling technology. Nir, thank you so much for joining us on the Warden FinTech Podcast today. Thank you for having me. So, to start, I want to hear a bit about, about yourself, your background prior to starting CyberRight. Sure. So, I've been working in uh, cyber risk management since 2001. Uh, my last two positions were at Accenture and PwC. I was working for Allianz and Deutsche Bank. Okay. And I've been basically dealing with that throughout my whole professional uh, career. I have a legal background as well. Uh, so I've done a lot of uh, regulatory compliance uh, uh, projects uh, related to uh, cyber risk management. And uh, that, that's, that's all I've focused on throughout the last uh, 18 years. Right. So CyberRight enables insurers, brokers, and agents to cyber profile and benchmark the cyber insurance risk of small and medium-sized businesses. What was the need you were seeing in the market that prompted you to found CyberRight? So I, I was obviously mainly working with large organizations. Right. And large organizations, the uh, risk functions and the risk management process is very different than small organizations. Um, corporates have started purchasing cyber insurance long ago, uh, in some form or another, even since uh, the 90s. Mm -hmm. And in somewhere in 2012, 2013, after the target uh, breach, uh, uh, it got more momentum and people started to buy more and more uh, uh, cyber insurance uh, for corporates uh, to the level that uh, I think something around 90% of the US market corporates actually have some level of cyber coverage in place. Wow. Um, but uh, I, I looked at the market and said, but what about all the small companies? They don't have uh, any budget to secure themselves, maybe a couple of dollars here and there for a firewall or an antivirus, but nothing critical, definitely not uh, security operation centers and, uh, and advanced security. And, and eventually I said, okay, they're definitely bound to at some point in time by insurance against cyber attacks uh, because it would be their only way to transfer the risk to another party. Now, when you don't have advanced security and you don't have a risk function, eventually you will be breached, or even if you do have those, you, you might be breached, but especially if you don't. And uh, it's, it's a question of uh, when as opposed to if. Mm -hmm. So it, it made a lot of sense. And then uh, I actually got a, a phone call one day from my father when I was already looking at it. And he said, uh, hey, uh, do you think uh, that you can somehow help us uh, sell more cyber insurance because he has a large brokerage firm? Okay. And I said, okay, that's interesting. Let's go together to, to meetings with customers and try to understand uh, what's going on. And one of the first things that I've noticed was that uh, customers have no idea how to look at their cyber risk. Uh, usually they don't even have an IT person, and even if they have an IT person, it's not a cybersecurity expert, so they have no idea what's going on. And uh, the second thing is even that the brokers are going there, the customer is asking the broker, so how much insurance should they buy? 100,000, a million, 10 million, and the brokers don't really have a tool to tell them, hey, well, according to our data, this is what you need to buy. So there has been a huge misunderstanding between the both sides, which was disabling the potential of, the, of this market. Right. And uh, so I said, okay, we should build something that can enable the brokers and the customers to have a mutual understanding and uh, a decision about the uh, insurance they need to buy and how to protect their business. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So what, 
what is the market size for cyber insurance right now? So uh, estimates are talking about existing size of $6 billion in annual written premiums already today. Wow. And uh, it's going to reach, uh, according to research uh, by Allianz, $20 billion by 2025. So it's going to grow dramatically. But I really believe that we are still in the very early days of cyber insurance. Right. So millions of businesses have already purchased, but you have over 50 million of 50 million SMBs around Europe and the US. And with the GDPR coming into effect in, in Europe, it's gonna push more and more businesses to actually insure themselves uh, uh, in case they get a regulatory fine. And many people are actually not aware of this, but regulatory fines are actually one of the most important component to look for in a cyber policy. So when you buy yeah. a cyber policy, it could cover your uh, uh, breach response cost, your uh, uh, um, incident response, uh, forensics, uh, but also financial fines. Uh, and this is something that is very appealing to many of the businesses now buying this type of policy. That's interesting. So I'm sure your benchmarking tool helps a lot with the carriers then pricing these policies. Right. So what the tool actually does is on the fly in real time creates a cyber profile mm -hmm. of a company. Uh, we collect data from open source uh, sources so we don't need to have any collaboration uh, from the business at all. It's completely frictionless. Oh, wow. And uh, we compare the profile that we have about this company to 100,000 other companies. Some were breached and some were not or had an incident or had a fine. And uh, using uh, machine learning, uh, we are basically finding correlation between the company that we are looking at and historical incidents and breaches that happen. Oh, this is enabling us to say, if this company is at higher or lower risk than other businesses in the same industry and the same geography. Uh, one of the uh, advantages in our technology is that we can do it in scale. So I can scan thousands of companies at the same time. And this is enabling me to go into uh, uh, new geographies uh, or new sectors uh, that we are uh, uh, implementing into our platform and provide the insurance industry and the businesses with a good benchmark. Because if it would have been just a benchmark to 100 organizations or uh, 500 organizations, it wouldn't be interesting. The point is to be able to really benchmark the risk of a specific business to uh, tens of thousands of other businesses and help them understand where they're exposed. In addition to that, you also want to tell them per coverage in the policy how much they should probably buy. So we make an estimation regarding the potential damage they would have. So I'm curious, you've done analysis on many types of different breaches. What is the most common type of breach you guys see in terms of cyber? It really varies. You know, it varies by geography and varies by sector. Uh, you see uh, um, retailers exposed to different types of attacks than, for example, hospitals. Uh, some would experience more of a point of sale attacks and some would experience more ransomware. Uh, if you look at hospitals, for example, last year, ransomware was very strong. Um, I don't have uh, clear data about which type of damage is happening more than others. But for example, you hear more about ransomware because when people experience ransomware, they experience it immediately. Right. When people experience a breach, they might find out in two years, they might not find out at all. So obviously when people just completely go into downtime and cannot serve their customers, you hear about that type of breach more than you would hear about others. Of course, yeah. So what are the biggest challenges in implementing your technology into carriers and brokers to help them effectively manage cyber risk and reduce loss ratios on underwritten policies? Right, so we, we are a cloud 
based platform. It's a software as a service. Uh, yep. The integration, we do have an API that an insurance company can use. Uh, the use case that we are bringing to the insurance company saying, hey, uh, connect the API into your platforms, into your underwriting platforms. This way, when a broker goes to a customer, they can run a report based on the customer request. The data goes automatically back into the underwriting platform of the insurance company. If it's under a certain level of risk, it could send the quotation immediately back to the broker while they're still on customer site and bind the deal. As opposed wow. to what's happening today, when you have uh, um, um, a broker going to the customer site, filling a questionnaire, then uh, saying, okay, I'll send it back to the underwriter. Underwriter sends it back to, uh, uh, to addi- for additional data. And then it takes a month and the customer, but in the meanwhile, the customer either loses the interest, uh, forget about it, or just uh, signs with someone else. Yeah. So it completely shortens the cycle and enables people to sell more. Um, yeah. Okay. And so are there any challenges in trying to get into them? Or what, what, is there any friction in terms of traditional insurance carriers not saying they don't need this right now or something like that? Right, well, one, of the, one of the things that obviously, obviously starting to work uh, with uh, insurance uh, carriers is, uh, very, uh, is a very long process. Yeah. Um, there is uh, the procurement from one side and the professional units from the other side. You have to be able to manage uh, the different stakeholders' uh, expectations in an effective manner. Um, we have uh, today multiple carriers working with us in Europe and uh, the United States, mm-hmm. um, and even uh, now in Latin America. Um, and I, I think that one of the reasons uh, we won those deals is because we, are, we have created a structured workshop that we conduct with the carriers once we start to work with them. Um, the result of this workshop is the adaptation of our algorithms and uh, report to their specific policy because there are many different kinds of policies. Some cover one thing, some cover other stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, we, we, bench, we, we, we eventually uh, speak with them and we understand what is covered from the head of cyber uh, insurance and from the uh, folks in charge of the wording of the policy. And we adapt our system to that. So it really helps for the insurance company, A, to get something which is more tailor-made for their... Uh, measures and eventually also to provide them with higher accuracy in predictions. Yeah, that's very helpful. Uh, last question is, uh, we have to mention the FinTech Innovation Lab today. Uh, we want to mention the FinTech oh, Innovation Lab today. Oh, definitely, definitely. What has the FinTech Innovation Lab done to help companies like you um, through this process? How have they helped you accelerate your growth? Right. So. Obviously, uh, we, we are uh, our R and D center is in Israel. Yeah. Uh, in Tel Aviv, a fantastic place for cybersecurity research, probably uh, in the top tier globally. And uh, for us to come to New York and to go into meetings organized by uh, the lab and to meet with all the top C-suite uh, executives of a specific insurance company and going to another meeting and meeting with 20 executives in charge of uh, cyber and sales and digital enablement, etc., is something that to do alone, uh, may be possible, but we would have taken much more effort and right. much more time, which in most cases startups don't really have. So this shortcut that we're taking from arriving here and meeting with all the relevant insurance companies, or many of them, in a very short amount of time, and uh, each carrier appoints a chaperone, which basically uh, uh, helps us to organize the meetings and get the engagement from the internal stakeholders, is really a fantastic, uh, a fantastic uh, uh, enablement tool. Um, I think also that uh, the lab is run by uh, Maria and uh, Sunny, which yeah. have done this for many years, mm-hmm. and they bring a lot of experience on how 
to create this engagement between the startups and the, and the incumbents. And I think their experience is very valuable to any company who would, uh, would consider to do a B2B type of engagement here in the United States, especially here in New York. And we're super happy and proud to be a part of this uh, program. That's fantastic. Well, it sounds like you've gotten a great experience from the program and the presentations were fantastic today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, we did have a very good, uh, a very good uh, experience and uh, uh, I think we're definitely at a different point today to or compared to where we were uh, three months ago. That's fantastic. Well, Nir, thank you so much for joining us today on the Ford and Fintech podcast. It's great you. to have you. Thank you very much. Great.